This week's episode is supported by Lumi. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it on even the most sensitive skin. And it's clinically proven to control odor anywhere on the body for 72 hours. And also supported by Damsel in Defense. Whether you're purchasing products or sharing the mission with your community, your support is making a difference. You can click the links in the show notes to find out more about these amazing supporters. Buckle your seatbelt. Look both ways before crossing the street. Don't talk to strangers. Don't eat too many sweets. Don't talk with your mouth full. Wash behind your ears. Don't sit so close to the television. Eat your vegetables. Don't spend it all in one place. Clean up after yourself. Come straight home. Obey the rules. Say your prayers. Respect your elders. Don't play with fire. Keep your hands to yourself. Keep the door locked. Always protect yourself. Don't climb too high. And don't take candy from strangers. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Police were called to a home in a suburb of Houston because a 17-year-old boy by the name of Elmer Wayne Henley was crying over the phone, struggling to get his words out, saying that he killed a man. He claimed to have killed Dean Coral. Coral had taken Henley under his wing, acted as his mentor, said that he was his friend. And when asked why he did it, the boy could only say, quote, it had to stop, end quote. Eventually, he confessed to everything. This was going to be more than a standard homicide. As the police would soon find out, this particular murder was actually the end of a two-year, torturous, abusive relationship between the teen and the deceased. But what the police were about to discover was an unknown three-year killing spree. Candy making was the family business. His mother owned and operated a small factory, and Dean and his brother Stanley were part of it in every detail. It started in their garage, but then grew into the Coral Candy Company in Houston. They called him the Candy Man, because he would frequently be seen around the schools and around town handing out candies to the kids. Dean Coral was in charge of hiring at the candy factory and would frequently pick up hitchhikers to give them a job. He had a soft spot for teenage runaway boys offering them a place to stay and a job. There was a game room in the back of the factory for the employees to hang out. One of the boys, David Brooks, looked up to Dean as a father figure. 
He was 12 years old when Dean began to sexually molest him. Dean would always apologize and give him cash or gifts. In December of 1970, Brooks walked in unannounced into a bedroom of Dean's apartment, and there he saw two boys tied to a four-poster bed and Dean was sexually assaulting them. Brooks told the police that Dean initially said that he was part of a pornography ring, but later told him that he killed the boys. Dean promised to buy Brooks a new car if he would keep silent. He did. David Brooks was the owner of a green Corvette. Then Dean Coral upped the ante. He offered David $200 for any boy he could bring him. He would eventually bring him in Elmer Wayne Henley. It is believed that Henley was meant to be another victim, but for some reason, Dean saw potential. He offered Henley the same deal as Brooks, $200 for every boy they would bring in. Henley would later say, quote, sometimes more if they were really good-looking boys, end quote. He also claims that most times they were really only given $5 or $10, but they kept bringing them in. The two teens would end up luring boys from 10 to 20 years old back to the candy man's house by using candy, drugs, alcohol, or money. Many of the victims came from the low-income district of Houston Heights. Once they made it to Coral's apartment, they were bound and gagged. Coral sometimes made the boys write postcards to their families telling them that they were okay. One postcard told his parents of him finding a new job and not to worry. The victims would be tied to the aptly named torture board and they would be raped, tortured, and finally killed either by strangulation or a 22 caliber. The killing spree finally ended in August of 1973 when Henley brought a few friends over to party not as victims. Williams was a 15-year-old girl and Curly was a 19-year-old friend. They all three got drunk, smoked pot, and huffed paint until they passed out. When they woke up, all three were tied to a torture board. Coral was furious with Henley for bringing a woman into the apartment. Henley begged for his life and promised that he would help get rid of her. When he unbelted Henley, Coral told him to take a knife and cut the clothes off the girl. He could do what he wanted with her, but Curly, the other teen, would be his. Coral then undressed and began in the rape and torture of the 19-year-old. Williams, the surviving female, would recall, quote, he stood at my feet and just all of a sudden told Dean this couldn't keep going on. He couldn't let him keep killing his friends and that it had to stop, end quote. Henley picked up the loaded twenty-two and pointed it towards his mentor. Coral, breathless, raised himself off his victim and squared off in front of Henley, taunting him, telling him to shoot. Kill me, Wayne, Dean would dare him. You won't do it. Well, he did. The bullet hit Coral in the forehead but didn't kill him, so he pushed ahead toward Henley. He fired off another two rounds, both hitting Coral. Still not dead, Coral decided to run from the room. Henley fired three final shots, hitting him in the shoulder and the middle back. Dean Coral's body slammed into the wall. His naked body slid down. The candy man was dead. Henley called the police and confessed to the killing of Dean Coral. The police didn't want to believe the stories that Henley was telling, they couldn't believe that this serial rape, mutilation, and murder had been going on for almost three years in their counties. Henley began to mention names that made the police sit up and take notice, as at least a few of those names were on the missing persons' reports. Henley himself also admitted to participating in the mutilation and murder of about 
six or eight victims. Upon further investigation of Coral's home, van, and car, they found the torture boards, which were planks of plywood with cuffs or nylon rope at each corner. They discovered reams of plastic sheeting, nylon ropes, handcuffs, sex toys, and wooden crates with air holes drilled into the sides. Later, several strands of hair were found inside each of the crates. On August 8th, David Brooks eventually turned himself in at the encouragement of his father. He claimed he did not participate in any of the abuse or murders, but was aware of the activities that had occurred. He did admit to assisting with the burials. He would say, quote, Once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and the crying, end quote. Henley and Brooks agreed to help the police find the bodies of 28 victims. The victims were found sodomized and some form of sexual abuse. Pubic hairs had been plucked, genitals had been chewed, objects inserted into the rectum, and glass inserted into the urethra and smashed. The victims were either shot or strangled, with the rope still around their neck and hands. Cloth rags were shoved into their mouth and taped all the way around their heads to prevent their screams from being heard. As of this recording, there's a new search underway, thanks to new evidence that there may be even more bodies still waiting to be found. David Brooks, in the midst of everything, managed to marry his pregnant girlfriend in July of 1973, and she stayed with him through everything. David continued to deny ever participating in any of the killings until the very end. He was indicted for four murders, but only charged with one. He died in prison in 2020 while serving his life sentence near Rosharan, Texas. Elmer Wayne Henley was not charged with the death of Dean Coral as it was ruled self-defense but was indicted of six murders and is still serving his six 99-year sentences in a Texas prison in Anderson County. All of his parole applications have been denied. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. It started off as mere flirtation at a park in San Francisco. And soon, the relationship of married Mr. John P. Dunning and the also-married Cordelia Potkin began to grow. They kept their meetings quiet and spread out so that no one would suspect. A child was born to Dunning and his wife, a little girl. Since John was so busy with work and things, and when there's a new baby, sometimes a girl just wants to be with her mother. So, Mary Dunning and the child went to visit her parents in Dover, Delaware, leaving the husband at home. Some reports claim that Mrs. Dunning knew about the affair, her husband guilty of multiple affairs in the past, 
and others claim that Mr. Dunning was an alcoholic and a gambler in addition to being a philanderer, so it seems the woman had plenty of reasons to take leave of San Francisco, California. It's 1895, and with no one standing in their way, the affair between John and Cordelia exploded. Soon they were seen together all over town, frequenting races and dining at cafes. They were inseparable. Cordelia rented a room on Geary Street at the Victoria Hotel, and John conveniently rented a room in the very same building. They talked about their pasts, their families, their futures. Dunning was a reporter for the Associated Press and longed to travel where all the exciting stories were happening. He was, at the moment, suspended from his work because he was allegedly caught embezzling money from the company. Cordelia just wanted for them to stay hidden away in their private rooms. The affair continued on for three years, but then John got the break he was hoping for. March 1898, he was invited to go to Puerto Rico to cover the Spanish-American War. He would be required to leave immediately. Of course, Cordelia didn't want him to leave. She begged him to stay with her, safe in their little hideaway from the rest of the world. She didn't want him to be in harm's way or even possibly killed. She cried and pleaded with him to stay. He was not about to pass up this opportunity to become a war correspondent. She accompanied him across the bay, using her last few moments with him to try and convince him to stay. But as he left her side, his parting words were not words of comfort to ease her suffering. They were blunt. They were cold. He told her that he would not be returning to San Francisco, ever. When he returns to the States, he insisted that he will be returning to his wife and child in Delaware. She would never see him again. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougeret here from Bag of Bones podcast. Since Stamsel and Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Mrs. Mary Dunning began receiving letters signed A Friend, postmark from San Francisco. These letters informed her that her husband was still constantly seen in the company of an attractive, very pretty woman and warned her not to bother reconciling with her husband. On August 9, 1898, a small package arrived at the Dover, Delaware home addressed to Mrs. John Dunning. Inside the box was chocolate bonbons resting atop a lacy handkerchief. There was a note enclosed with the package that read, quote, With love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C. End quote. Mary Dunning was delighted with the gift, and since traveling in a large social circle, 
probably knowing more than one Mrs. C., she indulged in the chocolates, sharing them with her sister, Ida Dean. Later after dinner, she offered to share the chocolates with her family while they sat out on the veranda. As two friends were walking past, they too stopped for a quick visit and also partook of the generous gift. Before the end of the night, all who sampled the chocolates were retching violently, and two days later, Mrs. Dunning and her sister, Mrs. Dean, were dead. Autopsies would disclose that the two women had died of arsenic poisoning. The chocolates were examined as well and were discovered to be the source. Taking it further, Mary Dunning's father took the note included with the candies and compared them to the aggressive notes sent from the same city and saw that they were a match. When John Dunning returned at being notified of the death of his wife, he was able to recognize the handwriting of that of his former romantic entanglement. It wasn't long before Mrs. Cordelia Botkin was arrested. She was found in Stockton, California, where she was hiding out, uh, I mean, visiting with her husband's son. Following the trail, one thing leading to another, a stack of evidence was piled up against her. At her trial, which began on September 6th, two women who worked at the candy store positively identified Cordelia as the woman who bought candy on July 31st. They remembered the specific direction of requesting a fancy box which did not have the firm's name on it, and also instructed that, quote, the box not be filled completely as she had another article to place in the box, end quote. The drugstore proprietor, Frank Gray, testified he sold two ounces of arsenic to a Mrs. Botkin who insisted she needed the poison to bleach a straw hat. When he recommended better products for the purpose, she refused him and purchased the poison. Before mailing the gift, the sales tag was neglected to be removed, which led police to the City of Paris shop, where the sales clerk recalled a conversation with Mrs. Botkin and herself, saying how much the woman resembled her own mother. Even John Dunning was required to produce love letters that were written during their affair and was able to show that the writing from the letters was done by the same person who addressed the box and wrote the enclosed note. Other witnesses placed her at the ferry post office on August 4th, and the porters from the hotel found a torn piece of gold seal from the box of candies that perfectly matched the remaining seal on the box. Her lawyers thought that it was all circumstantial evidence, which it was, but on December 30th, 1898, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. On March 9th, 1899, her husband sued for divorce on the grounds that she had been convicted of a felony. Ms. Cordelia Botkins was sent to the Branch County Jail instead of San Quentin. There she took advantage of the small quarters and it was discovered that, in exchange for sexual favors with the guards, she had every comfort at her disposal at the jail, and was even released from jail from time to time. When they tried to bring up charges to this effect, she claims that they were mistaken, and perhaps another woman that looked similar to her was also the person who purchased the arsenic, candy, and handkerchief. Her case was appealed and a retrial was held, and all the witnesses returned, but on August 2, 1904, she was again found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. She attempted another appeal in 1908, but the conviction held. She only lived two more years, and within that same time, she lost most of her family, her mother, sister, son, ex-husband, and even her beloved John Dunning would all die before her. 
She suffered from depression, and in February of 1910, she applied for parole because of her health and was denied. She died on March 7, 1910, at the age of 56. Her name was Clara Crane, but she will be remembered as the Candy Lady. Her story is the stuff legends are made of. Urban legends, that is. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Clara Crane was born in Texas in 1871. She was eventually married to an older man named Leonard, and they had one child, Marcella. They lived on a farm in Terrell, Texas. Her husband turned out to be a drunk and abusive, and so Clara turned all of her attentions and love to their daughter. She was her everything, her light in an otherwise dark world. And then, of course, the unthinkable happened. In 1893, while Marcella, who was five years old at the time, was riding on the tractor with her father, who was allegedly drunk at the time, the child had been killed. It's believed that the death was an accident, but Clara was beside herself with grief. She withdrew from society, and her sadness was all-encompassing. She couldn't forgive her husband and blamed him for allowing it to happen. Two years later, she couldn't dissuade her demons any longer. Clara decided to seek justice, but she decided to take matters into her own hands. It was reported that Clara poisoned some caramels and gave them to her husband, the local newspaper wrote that the day after her husband's death, a neighbor came by to check on her and discovered that she was building a large fire next to the house and was in a, quote, shaken and frenzied state, end quote. The paper went on to say that when the local sheriff came out to pay her a visit after hearing about the peculiar state, says, quote, Mrs. Crane became physically aggressive and was restrained and taken into custody, end quote it was suspected that she might have been attempting to burn down the residence. She was accused of murdering her husband and was confined to the jail until the trial. And on this researcher's note, I couldn't find anywhere that they did a test on the body of Leonard Crane to see if there was poison in his system or that she ever admitted to poisoning her husband. But she was tried and convicted for murder in the first degree. Instead of the death penalty... They claimed insanity and grief, and the sentence was commuted to the North Texas Lunatic Asylum. A year into her sentence, the doctors had noticed that she had created a baby from shredding her sheets and bundling them together. They documented that she would sing to it and speak to the blob of sheets, calling it by her daughter's name, Macy. In 1899, the hospital was considered overcrowded, and after four years being a quiet and calm patient, Clara was chosen as one of the inmates that would be released back into the world. They said that she was soft-spoken and was viewed as charming, and since hers was considered a crime of passion, it was unlikely that she would be any kind of threat to society. There are no records of Clara Crane after her release, no follow-up care, no property records, death records, marriage records. She just vanished. By the time 1903 came around, 
the people of Terrell, Texas, had started noticing an increase of missing children reports. The children started claiming that candy was being left on their windowsills. Add to that, a local farmer claimed to find children's teeth buried in his field. The rumors escalated when the death of a local sheriff supposedly found with forks in his eyes and candy in his pocket. The cases of these missing children, and of the sheriff for that matter, have never been solved, and the stories are still told today. It's hard to piece together when fact becomes lore, but as far as Texas is concerned, this story has been used as a precautionary tale for children ever since. And one final story, The Man Who Ruined Halloween. Meanwhile, back in Houston, Texas, another candy man makes the headlines. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. It was Halloween night, 1974. Ronald O'Brien took his 8-year-old son Timothy and his 5-year-old daughter Elizabeth trick-or-treating with some other neighborhood friends near their home in Deer Park suburb of Houston. Since there was a light rain falling, they only collected candy in around a two-block area for half an hour before returning home. As he went to bed, Ronald agreed to let both of his children eat one piece of candy before they went to sleep. They both chose a large pixie stick that they had received. When he had trouble getting the powder from the plastic tube, his father rolled the straw between his palms to loosen it. After pouring the candy into his mouth, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. O'Brien gave him some Kool-Aid to wash the taste out. Timothy began foaming at the mouth, doubling over with cramps and vomiting almost immediately. Within minutes, he was convulsing. His father called an ambulance. Ronald later told reporters as he sobbed loudly, quote, he was in the bathroom convulsing, vomiting, and gasping, and then suddenly he went limp, end quote. His son died 90 minutes later on the way to the hospital. Detective Bill Lanier recalled seeing Ronald for the first time at the hospital, saying, quote, He wasn't crying or bawling or anything, but there was no reason to believe that he was involved. End quote. The medical examiner would recall the scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth, which led him to alert the coroner to test for cyanide poisoning. And at the autopsy, it was confirmed that the child had consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill two or three grown men. By the next day, police had determined the pixie stick was full of cyanide. His daughter, five-year-old Elizabeth, who also chose the same candy before going to bed, still had it in her hand the next morning. She was unable to open it because of the staples that kept it shut. The police were able to get a hold of the other tubes filled with sugar and poison before they were ingested. Lab tests showed that the top two inches of each straw had been packed with a fatal dose of granulated cyanide. Police tirelessly knocked on the doors and asked each neighbor on three specific streets to turn over their candy and to wake their own children to make sure that they were all right. Ronald was anxious to help the police in their efforts to narrow down the location where the pixie sticks were handed out. During their search, five other poisoned pixie sticks were found with children who had also gone trick-or-treating with the O'Briens. Early in the investigation, Ronald's help raised suspicions. Quote, At first he kept saying, I don't know what home. Then, I don't know which street, Lanier would say. 
but they said they only trick-or-treated on two streets. Then he said he didn't see the person. All I could see was an arm, end quote. After walking up and down the neighborhood several times with a team of officers, O'Brien finally directed them to the house. It was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, who O'Brien said was the person who gave him the deadly candy. However, it would be O'Brien's choice of homes that would begin the police's investigation in a whole new direction. Courtney Melvin has an ironclad alibi. He's a shift worker at the Hobby Airport and claimed he didn't return to his home until 11 p.m. Or you could take the 200 other employees' word for it. As the investigation turned to take a new look at Ronald O'Brien, they followed the money. They discovered that he had 21 different jobs over 10 years and was fired from each due to negligence or fraudulent behavior. He was in deep debt to several creditors. And then, on the 4th of November, an agent from the Galena Park Insurance Agency called the police station alerting them of his recent cash purchase of life insurance policies on both his children on October 3rd, and that O'Brien insisted that his wife not sign the policies. This, on top of an earlier insurance policy, brought the return of $60,000 at the time if both children should happen to die. On Monday, November 4th, Ronald O'Brien was given a polygraph test, which he failed. He was arrested the next day for the murder of his son. He claimed that his son was murdered by an anonymous monster, and even though he nodded, agreeing with all the police were throwing at his feet, he would never admit to the deed. His trial began in May of 1975. There were several witnesses called, such as his friend, that also happened to be a chemist, who testified that Ronald called him and asked questions about cyanide specifically. How does one acquire it? How much would be fatal? How long does it take? A chemical salesman also testified about his inquiry of purchasing potassium cyanide and how he changed his mind when he found out he could only purchase it in five-pound packages. The friends that went trick-or-treating that night with them testified that Ronald went alone up to a house and brought back five giant pixie sticks, the kind in the plastic straws, and handed them out each to the children in the group and one random trick-or-treater and then his own wife testified against him. She told the jury that life with her husband bore a constant struggle with debt and financial pressure. When her husband began to talk about how they were going to spend the money after their son had just died, it sent up red flags. He wanted to pay off bills and then take a trip to Florida, she said. The police would later claim that she didn't seem surprised when they told her that her husband was their main suspect in the murder of their son. She just dropped her head and cried. And finally, the insurance agent testified that Ronald called him within hours of Timothy's death to begin the process of filing the claim. The jury took less than an hour to convict him. He was charged with four counts of attempted murder and one account of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death by electric chair on June 3, 1975. He sent in an appeal, and it was denied in 1979. The judge noted, quote, Not only did he kill his son for money, but O'Brien intended to commit other murders to do so. 
when he intentionally distributed the four additional poisoned pixie sticks to other children, the likely and predictable result of his actions was to cause their deaths also. End quote. Eight years after he was originally sentenced to die, the execution method changed to lethal injection. And on March 31, 1984, Ronald O'Brien was pronounced dead at 12.48 a.m. He maintained his innocence until the very end and offered forgiveness to those who doubted him. Outside the Huntsville, Texas prison, employees from a local bar handed out pixie sticks to the two to three hundred people who gathered outside the death chamber waiting for the news that it was finally over. Thank you, as always, for joining me for another episode of Bag of Bones. If you are enjoying these episodes, be sure to invite your friends to subscribe and listen. If you'd like to go the extra mile, a five-star review and rating would help us reach new listeners as well. I love creating these episodes for you, and I appreciate your kind words and support. Speaking of support, if you'd like to financially support Bag of Bones, you can always click the link and shop from any of the businesses that advertise with us. Or to help directly, you can always buy a gallon of gas. Or seven or twenty. Whatever moves you. And know that every effort of support is very much appreciated. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and as we eek closer to our one-year anniversary, I love hearing all of your suggestions. So, I'll meet you here again next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.